You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent bi-weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number six. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sally! Okay, here we are. A bit earlier than expected, I think, for uh, many of our listeners. Um, but uh, there is a good enough reason for this. Mm, yeah, we're going to try something different this time. Yeah. Different and new. New is always very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, turns out that uh, we have so many things to talk about, so many things to cover within European-level skepticism, that if we wanted to keep on putting everything into one show on a bi-weekly basis we would end up with two-hour-long shows. Mm. Yeah. And uh, instead of doing that, we are going to try something else. So we're splitting our show into a weekly podcast. That's very exciting. Every other week, there'll be um, an, a show dedicated to interviews. And then the week after, there'll be a show dedicated to news events um, and all the things, exciting things that are happening in Europe um, in skepticism. Yeah. We could um, consider it to be separated. So the same thing that we've we've had so far, but instead of having two interviews on the show, a longer one and a shorter one, we're going to keep the shorter one on the show and uh, the longer one, we're going to separate it into a different show. And this way, um, you, dear listeners, will end up having a show to download and listen to every single week. Yeah. So... We can't wait to get back to the original show as well for next week. But for this week, we are having an interview that we pre-recorded um, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Michael Heap. So, guys, talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Enjoy, everybody. Right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have Michael Heap with us uh, from Sheffield, who's a clinical psychologist, a forensic psychologist, and a chairman of the Association for Skeptical Inquiry, but also a board member of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello. First of all, I'd like to thank you for organizing or co-organizing the European Skeptics Congress 2015 in London uh, this September, which was a blast for all of us. So thank you very much for that. And I'd like to add that if we wanted, you would be nominated for the godfather of this, this podcast. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Godfather. Oh. Because that was where we agreed, the three of us, that we should start uh, doing a podcast for the European Skeptics Movement. So, uh, do you want to be a godfather to the podcast? Oh, yes, I'm very pleased that uh, this, this has come out of the uh, Congress, because that's what a lot of it is about, getting people together. And uh, once you start talking amongst yourself, then you have ideas and you collaborate with each other. And uh, I think that's uh, a very good thing that's happened. Yeah, we think so too. But let me ask you something. 
Um, did any people appear on the Congress who were expecting some kind of a different event based on the name EuroskepticsCon.org? I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Yes, I'm trying I know what you there. mean. We did, <laughs> we did wonder about that, that people would see the Euroskeptics and think it was all about uh, skepticism about the European Union and wanting to leave the European Union. <laughs> But um, I didn't actually encounter that specifically. I, I, I don't have any evidence that that actually happened. It might have done, but um, I didn't meet any problem myself with that. Okay, but uh, you have encountered lots of like-minded skeptics from across Europe, and uh, that was a great thing to see as well. But how did you, yourself, get involved in skepticism? I think it was about 1985 or 86, and the psychop from America, yeah. uh, the Committee for the Scientific investigation of the paranormal started to appear in the news in the United Kingdom and also we started hearing about James Randi and uh, I immediately thought this is a really good thing because uh, I've always been uh, interested in science, I've always supported science as a way of finding out about the world. I, I'm an atheist so I think uh, there's the material world, and that's all there is as far as we know. And uh, I'm interested in finding out mu as much as possible about the world. And I think science is a, the best way of finding out these things. And I'm also aware that, that um, a lot of things we hear from people about the world it, it are not true. For example, alternative medicine, astrology, and so on, uh, UFOs, etc., etc., so when I heard about Psychop and what James Randi was doing, I, I thought, well, this is really what I'm looking for. This is really interesting. I want to be part of this. And Psychop came over to the UK, to London, in the mid-1980s and put on a, a meeting at the University of London. So, of course, I went up there and uh, I was absolutely fascinated by it and really taken up by it. Then things went a little bit quiet. I waited for people in this country maybe to do something, get together. And the next thing that happened was that uh, Wendy Grossman, who was also at that meeting, started to bring out a newsletter called The British and Irish Skeptic. She was from Ireland. So I immediately signed up to that and I wrote one or two things in it. And uh, the next thing to happen was that uh, a group of us formed the Association for Skeptical Inquiry because we wanted to have an organization with a membership, as they do in other countries. So since then, I've been um, very much involved. I find it's fascinating. It's a way of learning all about different aspects of science. Um, the conferences have people from all different branches of science, and they're able to inform us. Um, in a, a non-technical way to, to, so that we can understand um, their disciplines and so on. So it's a very good way of learning about science. And of course I read the um, sceptical journals, I try to anyway. Then in 2003 we had uh, reorganized the European Congress in London and that seemed to go very well. And I've been going to the Congresses since in Europe. I always enjoy those. So yes, and, and scepticism in the UK has really got really a strong presence. 
But how much does ASCII have to do with it? I mean, as I understand the skeptics movement in the UK, it's uh, pretty much scattered. It's not organized around a certain big, large-scale organization. Well, that's true, yes. But I think this is the British way of doing things. ASCII is a very small group. We thought at the beginning that we could have a, a large national organization. Well, not quite as big as they do in the USA, but um, in Europe, I think the uh, Swedish organization is very strong. The Italian one is. The uh, German and the uh, Dutch and Belgian ones are a large membership. But somehow there didn't seem to be uh, interest in forming a big group in the UK. And I think it's because we like to do things at a, a local level. We like to do our own thing. So we have lots of individuals doing their own thing, forming their own groups. And uh, the strongest development, I think, in scepticism has been sceptics in the pub in the UK. There are dozens of these now. Uh, this is a very typical British thing, I think, to uh, have small organisations at a local level And, of course, the pub is a very natural choice for that. So that has been a very effective uh, forum for scepticism in the UK. And you get quite often invited to those events, uh, don't you? Personally, uh, now and again, I get an invitation. Um, but there's um, quite a wide range of speakers now. And uh, if you look at Skeptics in the Pub website, and they are moving around, there. first of all, they're in Oxford, and then they're in Edinburgh, and then they're down in Cardiff, and so on. So there are people who uh, are very popular with Skeptics in the Pub as uh, speakers. And we have some very well-known speakers as well. And uh, they give their time freely. They don't charge a fee. Uh, we pay their expenses. So it's um, very good, really. And uh, any member of the public is welcome to come along. In Sheffield, we ask for a donation. We don't specifically ask for an uh, entrance fee. And uh, you, you are um, organizing the, the Sheffield pep, uh, Skeptics in the Pub yourself? There's just three of us now involved in the organization. And... Uh, We um, started it uh, five years ago. Of course, we met in a pub, a local pub, and discussed it and um, decided we'd, um, we'd find out where the best pub was to have it. And then we drew up a program. And uh, since then, we, we meet every month, have a speaker. It's been very successful and very popular. And what are the, the most popular topics? I understand that in the UK, the psychological topics and themes are pretty much um, among the most popular ones, like uh, uh, parapsychology and the psychology of uh, believing weird things. And there are there are many people working on those fields, like uh, Chris French, uh, Richard Wiseman, um, Susan Blackmore, right? Yes, the, the psychological uh, interest is quite strong and uh, a lot of the speakers, um, they're either psychologists or people with an interest in psychology. Uh, neuroscience is another common topic. We started off originally with the traditional topics of scepticism like um, astrology, alternative medicine. UFOs. UFOs, yes, <laughs> and mythical monsters. Uh, conspiracy theories and so on but uh, you don't want to keep repeating these uh, topics so we branch out into other areas like um, crime for example education sometimes they're not um, necessarily things that skeptics 
traditionally have um, been interested in. But we're fortunate in Sheffield. We have two large universities, so we have the various academic departments to draw on. So we often have a speaker from the university. Often the uh, the topic is um, something like uh, dispelling uh, common beliefs that you read about in the newspaper. In this country, we call it received wisdom, which is, uh, you know, the what people believe. But actually, when you look at it, there's, um, there's not a lot of evidence for it. So we have people with radical ideas, radically different ideas coming along to talk. Because, you know, if, if we kept having uh, somebody talking about alternative medicine, eventually people would be, you know, would get fed up of it. Yeah. So, Michael, you, you mentioned a lot of different things that you talk about in, in the skeptics, in the pub. Do you have any favorite uh, uh, subject or, or, or a particular speech that, that you attended that was really uh, special and something different? Well, we always find that Chris French is very good because he draws on a wide experience from his research that he does with his students. And Richard Wiseman... It's very good because he does things like testing people who make extraordinary claims. And he's very amusing. And I think a lot of skepticism is very amusing because it's all about human absurdity uh, from which you can learn a great deal. So those have been memorable meetings. We also had Simon Singh at the beginning when he was being sued by the chiropractors and he was um, fighting the ridiculous libel laws in uh, the UK and uh, it was interesting to see him before they actually changed the laws so he was still fighting the campaign and now this week I was reading in the newspaper that the number of libel actions that have been brought in this country has dropped since then so that's an achievement. I remember a very good, very revealing talk about somebody who had, um, I don't know whether in any other country this happens, but we have people who deny that AIDS is related to the HIV virus. And he has um, gone onto the internet and YouTube and um, publicized evidence for this. And uh, astonishingly, he said he's had um, people... uh, ringing his family and friends up, getting in touch with his family and friends. And this has happened to other people as well, people who challenge conspiracy theories, being um, abused and uh, personally attacked and, and this kind of thing. And that I thought that was very revealing. You did mention Randy at the very beginning, and he's got his million pound million dollar sorry prize for uh somebody who can prove you know the the uh, supernatural ability etc is is there a similar prize in uk the sisyphus prize no the sisyphus prize came out under the belgian uh skep their skeptics organization but what we could do was we could test somebody in our own country and if they pass the test, they could then go to Belgium and be tested for the Sisyphus Prize. Is this still on? Yes, I believe it is. The prize isn't as big as it used to be, but uh, it's still on. Ask also run its own prize for somebody who could uh, demonstrate paranormal powers. And uh, is it is it a separate prize? Um... Oh, we've, we've stopped it now. Oh, you stopped it. I might start it again. 
But we stopped it because there, there was very little interest. The people who inquired about this, the proposals were just nonsense. <laughs> Somebody um, immediately demanded that we give them the prize. <laughs> For some reason, I can't remember if it was. But we did have two that I was involved in. One was a dowser. There was a man down the south of England who was a retired engineer. He was a very intelligent man, a very sincere and genuine man. And uh, we went down. We didn't actually do an official test with him. He was just dowsing for water, and he had quite a bit of land. So his friends set up a test for him. So it wasn't strictly um, a good test because his friends could have told him where, where, where the water was. But they didn't But because um, he failed the test. But it was uh, very interesting, and he was convinced that he was able to use his dowsing rods to find water that had been buried in a, a pipe and there were three different pipes buried in this land and uh, if he'd have got all three of them which was the um, criterion that was set he would, it would have been a one in a thousand chance but he didn't get any of them but he was totally convinced and of course he continued to believe that he had this um, ability this one test didn't convince him then I agreed to go and see a, a woman who made a number of claims, one of which was that there were noises of spirits, people who had died, coming over on her computer. We, uh, we agreed on a, a test for this. The test didn't work, but she kept changing things and moving the goalposts. This wasn't right and that wasn't right, and I, I tried my best. Classic way of doing it, right? Yeah, I tried my best with her, and in the end I had to say, to her, look, you know, now we cannot test this scientifically because of all the changes you've made to this. So, but now she's um, making very uh, slanderous statements about me on the internet, but it doesn't bother me. <laughs> well, at the uh, European uh, Congress, um, I remember there were few um, tests the guys demonstrated with dowsing rods, and um, even after going through the routine of testing and showing people, look, you failed, um, it's, it's just as, as, as good as a chance, the people themselves who believed to, to have the powers were not convinced. They still believed that they, you know, they still have the powers and um, it's the test that's wrong, not them. And you just wonder what, what, what will take for them to change their minds and say, yes, there isn't anything there. And... Um, accept that there isn't any supernatural. I think, um, in fairness, for example, this man I was telling you about, so okay. far as he was concerned, he'd had lots and lots of evidence from his own experience that he had this ability, and he genuinely believed that he had. So if you do one test on him, and he fails the test, for him it doesn't mean to say that he has no ability at all. He can say, well, on this occasion... It didn't work. On this occasion, I was unable to demonstrate my ability. So the test, I think, is not a way of showing people that they don't have this ability. All it is is you're asking them to demonstrate this ability, and if they can't, they can't. You know, they haven't demonstrated it on that occasion. So I, I don't um, hold it against people that they don't change their minds. I mean, after all, I could say to you, I can run, you know, a mile in four minutes, 
and then you set up a test and I don't run a mile in four minutes, I can always say, well, I wasn't feeling too good that mm. day. Yeah. But may- maybe the, the purpose of the test is not to debunk one individual, it's to show that after 30 years or whatever, we have offered this prize and still no one has won the prize. Or you could say the purpose of the test is to find somebody who has some exceptional ability and wouldn't that be wonderful if you did actually sure. find somebody who could demonstrate that they had um, extra sensory perception or predict things in the future or uh, could um, find uh, water that's hidden. If the man that we saw had been successful, that would have been wonderful. I I would have been able to say, well, uh, um, I was there at the time. This wonderful discovery was made. And what a a wonderful line of research could emerge from such a a finding. Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 Have you ever encountered a person who changed their mind in the face of uh, the evidence that they actually lack these capabilities of uh, performing such phenomena? Well, I haven't, but I don't think I've had a lot of experience of of this kind of testing. Now, uh, I once asked Randy about this. He and his organization have tested hundreds and hundreds of people to say that there were... There were just a few, one or two, maybe five, who um, then doubted whether they had the ability. They said, thank you, I'm going to go away now and I think that, you know, I may may change my mind now. I asked uh, Richard Wiseman the same question and he said, I'm waiting for the day when that happens. (laughs) And then he gave a wonderful anecdote about a woman he tested who claimed that she could um, tell you where your pet's dog was. She worked with dogs. And if somebody had lost a dog, she could tell you where the dog was. So Richard set up a test for this and he showed the woman the dog and it was a collie dog. So she said, yes, I can do this test. Of course, she failed the test. And then she said, well, uh, it's because the dog is a collie. I, I can't do collies. I can't. <laughs> said, well, but you knew it was a collie. You knew it was a collie. <laughs> so, there we go. But these, these beliefs, the need uh, for having these abilities, is, has, has their roots so deep that I think admitting that they don't have these abilities uh, would really require a clinical psychologist to deal with. <laughs> right? Oh. So... Well, there's no reason why they should give up their belief, really. Yeah. It's not like uh, illusions that are very destructive and very frightening and wreck people's lives. I think once you've had a, a very unusual experience or if you think you have an unusual ability and so on, then you want to hold on to that. You don't want people to take that away from no, you. There's nothing in it for them um, to leave that. Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, it's either a need or if you've seen something strange like um, a strange animal a mythical beast or uh, a, a ufo you, you know it can change your life life is now more exciting it's more interesting you've had this experience and you don't want anybody to come and take that away from you yeah i just wish that people were excited about the real science and how the world actually works it's the most exciting thing ever imaginable, you know, the greatest show on earth. We don't need to make stuff up. It's just the world is amazing without needing to, to, to create something or to believe in, in something that's not there. So it's quite sad, really. <laughs> it makes me sad that, that people prefer to do that. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. 
But the problem with science is it's, it belongs to somebody else. I mean, I think evolution is a wonderful theory. I think um, quantum physics is. I think relativity is. Modern physics is. But I can't claim any expertise. I can't claim any knowledge. I can't own any special knowledge. I can't really own it. It's owned by science. So beliefs in paranormal, the person feels they, they own it. They have this ability or they've, they can demonstrate it. They've seen it. They've witnessed it. It belongs to them. And that's, I think... Uh, maybe the attraction of it, so that they've actually seen a flying machine or a, a actually even a person, a being, has come from another planet billions of miles away. So they've, it belongs to them. They, 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 they've had that, that experience, whereas um, if a scientist tells you all about wonderful things in the universe, that there are um, black holes billions of miles away, you, you have to accept that but you can't um, investigate it yourself. You know, you can't um, make an argument for or against it. Do you see any changes in the mindset of, of, of people uh, at large? Um, I mean, their attitudes towards science and pseudoscience? Because you just mentioned that you have been involved in the skeptical movement since the late 80s. So since then, have you seen much change? Oh, yes. Uh, particularly in the media, with journalists, newspapers, television programs now. Unlike in the past, there's, there's very few programs now that present um, the kind of unusual um, ideas or claims or practices that are not supported by science, whereas in the past they, they would do. And um, a journalist, scepticism has a very clear presence now. And journalists know what scepticism means, you know, scepticism with a big S, what it's all about. And, so in uh, the UK, that is? In the UK, certainly. Okay. So um, at the moment, one thing that's been in the news is homeopathy. Thanks to, in part, to Simon Singh and his Good Thinking Society, um, there is now a proposal that homeopathic remedies will no longer be prescribed within our health service. About four million pounds of money was being spent. Isn't a lot, really, but yeah. um, is being spent on homeopathic remedies for patients. They're now considering um, what they call blacklisting homeopathy. There is a blacklist of drugs that doctors can't prescribe. Now, uh, in the past, homeopathy and other forms of alternative medicine were regarded as kind of really good, really, really um, honest and um, exciting and uh, natural and uh, healthy and uh, so on. There was a very tolerant attitude. Our royal family had something to do with it, that's the Prince of Wales. <laughs> um, but uh, now the uh, articles about alternative medicine, and particularly now just about homeopathy, are very sceptical in the newspapers and on television. People are much more sceptical and much more scathing, much more critical of uh, these kind of practices that don't, are not supported by science. Another example now is of quite a few years ago, if you mentioned the Loch Ness Monster, the general feeling was, well, there is something in there, it could be a monster and so on, but now it's just a laugh, everybody laughs about it. One more thing that I've noticed is that uh, 
there have been a few comedians like Tim Minchin and others who are skeptics. Stephen Fry is another um, who are willing to uh, make jokes about things like homeopathy and uh, they get laughs. People laugh at them now. And, uh, uh, I, that's an, an interesting phenomenon because in, in the UK particularly, if, if you want to discredit something, you just laugh at it, you, you ridicule it. We're very good at that. So now uh, a lot of these ideas are just ridiculed and I think that's very good. So Michael, bearing all this in mind, do you think the future is bright for the European scepticism? Well, I, I should think so. I've been thinking what is the European Council for Skeptical Organisations? What is it for? How can we work together as Europe? And uh, I don't think there's a lot that we can do together, to be honest, because there, we have different things going on in different countries. But what we can do is share our experience and share our methods, our, our campaigns. For example, with the homeopathy campaign and the chiropractic campaign, People in other countries can learn from uh, the, the success of these campaigns, and we can learn. From, the UK can learn from other countries as well what's been successful. And I think it's a good idea that we meet together as well, have these congresses. And we've been wondering about whether we could have some kind of European magazine for skepticism, a European journal where people can publish what they've been doing. Or a European podcast. <laughs> and, oh, oh, sorry, yes. Finally, we come to this idea of having a European podcast. Yes, no, that's uh, another extra thing that we can do. Well, we would like to be a platform for European sceptic um, organisations where they can uh, come and uh, either advertise events or, or get together, do little um, news segments where they would report on what's happening. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of an online uh, audio magazine. <laughs> the other thing, of course, is the European Union. There might be issues that um, need to be uh, drawn to the attention of uh, the bureaucrats, the lawmakers in the European Union. Um, Willem Betts, I think, has been involved in um, alternative medicine and the regulations and the rules and herbalism at a European level, at the level of the uh, European Union. Well, I think uh, this sums up our interview with Michael Heap, honorary godfather of the European Skeptics podcast. Um, oh, by the way, the acronym for the European Skeptics podcast is very special for everyone interested in parapsychology, mm. which is the ESP. Yes. <laughs> Awesome confusion, I'm sure. So, how do you feel after your first ESP experience? Oh, I feel I've taken it in my stride. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much again for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Hope to see you again very yeah. soon. Okay, then. Okay, Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. 
We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Hrab and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage, theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe